So Pastor David's had it. He decided to give it to me, I think. <clears throat> and, uh, and now we're slowly passed it on to Charlie. Uh, Brendan, we're saving it for you for early August, mate. <laughs> um, it's been a great week, hasn't it? <coughs> I'm over the flu. Sorry? There's an awful lot of blue here tonight. Isn't it interesting how God speaks to us? I wore those socks especially for you, was I? Yeah, one, yeah, that's right. I shouldn't say too much. I think we just poke the bear. I think the next game's going to be a look at. What was the score? 28, does it matter? Yes. 28, <coughs> excuse me for coughing. You're a hard crowd, I tell you. <laughs> Psalm 28, 28, verse 4, New Living Translation. Give them the punishment they so richly deserve. <laughs> Measure it out of proportion. Um, pay them back for all their deeds. Give them a taste of what they've done to others. <laughs> as somebody after the first service texted me and said, just as well uh, Queensland didn't score another point, verse 5 says... They care nothing for what the Lord has done. So he will tear them down and they will never be rebuilt. <laughs> I just think that's wonderful. Yep, it's the end of a dynasty, one game and we are the world champions. Go figure, yeah, hardly. It was a good game though, wasn't it? I thought it was a good game. You know, the first half particularly was a good game. And I, I, I didn't think we were going to win, actually. I thought Queensland played remarkably well. There were some parts of the game were just like, my goodness, how did he do that? I don't know the guy's name, but there was one little guy who stopped this giant of a Queensland. It was a metre from the, the try line. He was charging for it. He just went, stop. And you went, how did that happen? Thank you, Lord. And then there was a time when we, New South Wales, we, I, I thought we were going to put the ball down over the try line and a Queenslander runs around with a ball. Did you see that? Yeah, anyway, I don't know how we got the ball. So now that I've got that out of my system, my job tonight is to teach you this passage from God's Word, which is very important for us, a very important application. All of God's Word is important, of course, and some of it speaks to us more clearly than others. So let me pray and... Um, then we'll jump in. Father, your word is a blessing and a privilege for us to have, and we thank you for giving it to us. And yet even so, Lord, uh, without the work of your spirit, there are things that we cannot understand that are beyond us. So we need your assistance, and you're more than willing to give it. So here we are, Lord, open-hearted, alert minds, wanting to hear from you, wanting to understand this passage. And what does it mean for us as we seek to follow the Lord Jesus. So we ask that you might teach us and speak to us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Anybody here ever not been angry? No. Anybody here not been angry today? A few more hands. About 80% of us have been angry today. (laughs) Anger is normal. It's natural. And when we read this passage, you may draw the wrong conclusion that anger is wrong. And you may have heard the adage or the statement that anger is sin. That's not true. Anger is not sin, as we'll learn tonight. Maybe you've said these, heard these, heard others say these, said these when you were growing up. We all say silly, stupid things that we later on regret. I hate you. I wish you were dead. You're stupid. You're worthless. I wish I never had you. I wish you weren't my parents. And on and on and on. And because maybe a social convention or other pressures or whatever, we may not say it out loud, but we're saying it on the inside. We're thinking it. And we're feeling it. It's all of us. It's partly how God has made us. This anger response is natural, normal, and God-given. God gets angry. Jesus got angry. Paul says, be angry and don't sin. So it's possible to be angry and not sin. It's possible. Very difficult, but possible. Tonight we'll learn how that's possible and we'll learn exactly what Jesus is teaching his disciples here. The context is, of course, that he has instructed in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you're following him, then your righteousness is to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And they were the the elite, the religious leaders, the moral religious elite. And Jesus says, you've got to be better than them. And of course, what Jesus means is that they gauged and governed their morals, their religiosity by external criteria. And Jesus wants to say, your righteousness has to go beyond simply the external acts, it includes that, but it's to go to the internal motivations, the attitudes, the feelings. It's this which drives that. It's not just simply coming to church and going through the outward motions of sitting in church, standing and singing, putting money in the plate, Listening to a sermon and then shaking hands and going home, that's just the outward act of it. It's actually connecting in the heart. When you're singing, you're actually singing to God and wanting to exalt him. You're not just singing about doing it, you're actually desiring that. You're wanting that. You're participating in it. And When you're putting money in the plate, you're actually wanting to participate and give to God's work. The heart is engaged. That's clearly what Jesus means by us having righteousness. If it's not internal then it's not real for us. And so Jesus is going to illustrate that. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he illustrates it six different ways. Here is the first way. You have heard to the ancients or to those of old, don't commit murder. Um, And if you do, then you are liable to judgment. Now, of course, Jesus is not correcting or changing the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments do so, you shall not murder. But the bit that Jesus is quoting and correcting is not the commandment, but the tradition, the teaching and the... Um, the perspective of what the religious leaders had been saying about it, the rabbis and the scribes and so on. They said that don't murder, and if you do, then you're liable to judgment. Actually, you're liable to the death penalty, according to the Old Testament law. 
I'll never forget once I visited a lady a long time ago, different church, different context. She was on the journey. She was on the way to becoming a Christian and she wasn't quite there. And whatever it was, there was something obstructing her. And I was sort of probing and trying to figure, what is it? And I said, look, we've all committed sin. And she just, she was weeping and she couldn't bring herself to confessing or saying what it was and asking God to forgive her. She thought she had committed the worst possible thing ever. What's the worst sin? Well, you might have different answers to that. Most of us would say it's probably murder. And most of us can draw the happy conclusion of saying, well, at least I have never murdered anyone. I can't say all of us, but certainly most of us. Maybe all of us here tonight haven't murdered anyone. I said that to this young lady, young mum. I said, well, you haven't murdered anyone. She burst out. She hollered. She had. She'd had an abortion years ago. And the guilt of it had never left her. And she couldn't find her way forward. So I got the opportunity to be able to share with her of saying, Jesus even forgives us even for that. That's not the greatest sin of all. That's not the unforgivable sin. But for, for most of us, we can draw some comfort in saying, well, I've never murdered anybody, so I'm pretty safe ground here. I've never called anybody racker. What's racker? It's very familiar to RACQ, isn't it? R-A-C-A. And you could draw the fault conclusion, therefore, of saying, well, because I've never said that of somebody, therefore I'm, I'm off. Now, Jesus is not talking about the words, just like fool or racker or any of these other words. He's talking about the heart motivation of what leads to those sorts of expressions. Is that right in you? So let's go through this <clears throat> clearly and reasonably quickly. Then I want to get to application. Jesus says, verse 22, that everyone who is angry with their brother will be guilty before the court. It's not if you murder somebody, you're guilty before the court. Jesus said, no, 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 that's the fruit. The root of murder is anger. Anybody who is angry with their brother will be guilty before the court. And it's obviously not a human court, I think. It's difficult, but I think Jesus probably means a heavenly court, God's judgment. You're guilty before God. <clears throat> and the anger he's talking about is not the anger that we all get. Anger is both an event an instantaneous reaction or response to perceived wrong. Something happens and we get angry. We've been hurt, we've been upset, somebody's done something wrong and it's affected us or they've said something that's offended us or hurt us and we get angry. That's normal, natural, quite okay. It's what you do with it at that point that becomes, is this going to be righteous anger or is this going to be unrighteous anger and therefore sin? Jesus is talking about the unrighteous anger. Everybody who has anger which they harbour, it's this continued anger, this resentment which is in you and you replay it and you relive it and you retell it. And you may even tell other people about the terrible thing that person has done to you or said and you tell lots of other people and you have no intentions of getting over it. That sort of anger is what Jesus is talking about. We have an idiom, an expression in our culture, we talk, talk about nursing a grudge nursing a grudge interesting picture here's my little grudge <laughs> you grow up you become a big strong grudge yes nursing a grudge but that's what we do because we are fallen sinful creatures we are more than capable now you may not this may not be an issue for you but i would guarantee for most of us it is myself included 
that we have a natural predisposition that when we are hurt and offended, we want to push back, we want to defend ourselves, and it's an angry response. And Jesus says that's not appropriate as, as his follower. Everyone who is angry with a brother, you're guilty before God's court. This harboring anger because we've been irritated, wronged, or displeased. It's, please get it clear in your brain, it's this holding the grudge, this smouldering bitterness that Jesus is talking about. Not the, I'm driving my car along the road and, you know, somebody cuts me off. And that's annoying, it's frustrating, and it makes you angry. Several days later, you'll get over it. Or you go to park a car park and, you know, someone pinches your car park. It makes you angry, doesn't it? Oh, there are lots of other things that maybe push your buttons. It's not the event, it's this ongoing thing. And it's interesting too, Jesus says it's a brother. Why does he say that? Well, I don't think it's to exclude anybody, but I think he's alluding to the fact that we tend to get angry with the people who are closest to us. It's hard to stay angry at somebody whom you don't know. The idiot on the road who cuts you off, annoys you, makes you angry, but you don't know him or her, them. So eventually that'll calm down. But if it's a loved one, we tend to be less controlling. We just tend to let it out, don't we? We flare up, we fly off the hook, we say things we ought not. Which is why in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 19, one of the reasons why Paul says, husbands... Love your wives, look after them. Don't become embittered with them. It's so easy to do that. And the reverse, obviously, wives with husbands. It's this harboring guilt that Jesus is talking about and we tend to flare up. And what we need to do, as I'll come back and say, is you need to control it. You've probably been in the situation and if you haven't been in the situation, then you've probably seen somebody else in the situation where you're angry with somebody, <clears throat> you're trying to sort it out, but the temperature's rising, the words are rising, and the phone rings. And you go answer the phone. And you're talking clearly, strongly, emphatically, righteously. Hello, Darcy. <laughs> and tone changes. You're more patient. Why is that? Well, you're controlling it. You don't want the person on the other end to know what you're really feeling. You're suppressing it, you're hiding it, you're controlling it. Well, you can do that with the person you're angry with. But we choose not to. That's the difficulty. Jesus then goes on and uses two other illustrations, or two words, in fact. One that has no direct meaning for us, but there are, I guess, equivalents, but there's no direct parallel. The word raka. Sounds like raka. It sounds like you're spitting on somebody. Rock. It was a derisive term. We think the word is referring to their intellectual ability. You're a blameless idiot. You're an empty head. You're worthless. You're a buffhead, a blockhead. You're an imbecile. We have lots of words that we could use. And Jesus is saying, if that's your attitude, if you're expressing words like that to somebody else, that's coming out of an, uh, a frustration and an anger which is within, and it's not right, and in fact you'll find yourself guilty before the Supreme Court, who dish out major penalties. And then Jesus goes on and says in the next verse about fools, calling people fools. 
Well, once again, you see, it's not so much the word, it's the context in which it's being said. If it's a fool which is being driven by the anger, the animosity, that's wrong. But Jesus says, call somebody a fool, foolish and slow of heart to believe. Paul calls somebody a fool. The book of Proverbs is filled with calling it a fool. But they're not driven by anger. They're driven by what you're doing is foolishness. You're ignoring God. They're appealing out of love. It's motivated by that, even though it's a similar word. Make sense? So at the end of the day, it's not whether you've said racker or whether you've said fool. It doesn't matter what word you use. It's the attitude of the heart and with which you say it and mean it. Pastor David, I'm going to ice cream you. What do you think I'm going to do to him? Buy him an ice cream? No, it's the tone of voice, it's the pointing of the finger, it's the attitude, isn't it? That's re- it's not the word, it's all the other language, uh, body clues, communication clues that are given that something is not right. No, I'm not going to, brother, ice cream you, by the way, I was just picking on you. Oh, don't jump ahead, I'm coming to that bit. In fact, uh, just interestingly... The Greek word that, Paul, uh, that is used here where Jesus talks about calling somebody's fool is moros, from which we get our word moron. It's quite insulting, isn't it? And again, don't become legalistic about, well, you're not allowed to use that word, but you can use all other sorts of words. No, it's the attitude. Don't call people stupid. Don't call them dumb. dumb. And particularly in Jesus' society, in an honour-shame society, then this was a pretty big deal, what you called people. To belittle somebody publicly, that's bad, in a, even in our society. But in a shame-honour society, it's even exacerbated even more. You're attacking their honour, their integrity, their reputation. It's character assassination. It's murder. It's not as bad as physical murder. But it is bad and it's over the line and it's sinful and it's wrong. And as followers of the Lord Jesus, our righteousness to exceed that. Jesus then gives two very quick examples. One internally to do with worship. And that's probably to do with our relationships inside the church, if you want the application. That's where I would go. And the other one is from the legal system, which is probably to do with people outside the people of God, outside the church. In the first one, the more you think about it, the more awkward and Jesus' point becomes even sharper. If you're worshipping God and you're going to the temple and you're bringing your gift and back in that day it was you'd brought a sheep or a goat or an animal to sacrifice and you would go to the doors of the temple and there would be the priest, you couldn't go in so you would be passing the animal over to him, place your hands on the head, you would confess your sins, you would ask God to forgive you in order that your relationship, fellowship with God could be um, made one again, that you'd be made right with God. That's the picture Jesus is talking about. If you're bringing your animal as a gift... And when you get to the door, you remember that person has something against me. Not, I have something against that person, the other way around. I've done something wrong, I've hurt and offended somebody, and they've got something against me and I haven't sorted it out. Jesus says, leave the animal, leave the goat, go, be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and continue your act of worship. The point Broken relationships interfere with worship. And Jesus teaches that our worship to God is unacceptable unless we are in right relationship with one another. 
What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. They go together. John says, you can't say I love God and hate your brother or sister. Nor can you say, by if I'm loving my brother and sister, then I don't need to love God. It's both. You need both together. Always. And Jesus uses this illustration to say, relationships and reconciliation are so important. You need to put worship of God being reconciled with him on hold. And we would go, really? That's the most important thing to do. Jesus says, well, actually, it's ineffective. It's like you coming and saying to God, please forgive me for my sins, but I have no intentions of forgiving them. And God says, well, then I can't forgive you. It's a bit like that. That's the first illustration. Second one is more in the legal area. It's with courts, where again, you're the culprit. You've done something wrong. And the person, whether they've tried to be reconciled or tried to sort it out, whatever, they're now taking you to court. And in Jesus' day, you would do that. If you had a legal problem with somebody, someone didn't pay their bill, you would simply come and get them and say, come with me, we're going to see the judge. On your way to see the judge, you know what it's about. Be reconciled with your partner, with your offended person. Because when you get to the judge and he hands you over to the judge, the judge is going to make you pay anyway. He'll send you to prison, he'll send you to the guard, the guard will put you in prison and you won't get out of prison until you've paid your final debt. You're going to pay anyway. So Jesus says, sort it out. Don't wait to get to the courts, don't wait to get to the judge. Reconciliation is urgent and it's important. Make every effort to fix the situation as best you possibly can. Righto, that's the passage, that's what Jesus teaches us. Not to harbour anger. We, if we do, then we are sinning. And um, if we're out of sorts with a brother or sister, then we're out of step with God as well. And we may be even some lot of legal trouble by our attitudes and our actions. <clears throat> Ed Young, pastor, wrote a book called Fatal Distractions. And he identifies four different ways that people react or how people get angry. How do you get angry? Different people do different things. You might be a mixture of some of these or you might be exactly one of these. The first one, he says, is a snow cone. A snow cone is a person who, when they get upset, everything goes cold. They give you the cold shoulder. It's a big chill. What's wrong? Nothing. They refuse to talk about any of the issues. They're obviously upset but they're just silent about it. The big, the snow cone. You like that? Number two, he calls them the toxic waste response. These are the people who, when they get upset, angry or hurt by somebody, they bury it and they bury it deep. And on the surface, they present this um, all okay front. Toxic waste, buried deep, but it's gonna contaminate lives. And eventually, over the years, some of it starts to leak out. It does contaminate and it does poison. And it goes back to that wrong way of dealing with anger, burying it deep. Number three, he says, uh, the people who are like volcanoes, they could rumble for days or for years until at some point they've had enough. 
I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. And just like a volcano, they erupt and it all comes out. And they spew hot lava over their relationships with people or the person they're directing it to. And the relationship is just charred remains. Volcanic people never apologize for their anger. Or number four is the microwave. Maybe you're a microwave responder. It's an instantaneous response. As soon as something goes wrong, you can mark the time, you can hear it. Tick, 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 tick. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, yeah, boom. And they explode. Got a short fuse. And they carry their matches just with them, just in case. And usually it's over minor things. They may even engage in what's called guerrilla warfare, you know, pot shots, but never really talking about the issues. Don't know if you find that helpful or not. Different people respond in different ways. All of those are inappropriate. All of those are wrong. All of those are quite common. Hurting ourselves by the way we deal with anger. Well, how do we get help then? Number one, anger is an alarm. God the Creator has made us and has given us the ability to get angry. And when we get angry, it's the alarm going off. Beep, 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 something's wrong. What's wrong? Well, somebody said something, somebody did something. Whether they did or not, I perceive that they did. I think they have. That's why I'm angry. It's an alarm system. And you need to pay attention to the alarm, the alarm system. Sometimes it could be a false alarm because you've misunderstood whatever they said. I mean, this doesn't quite illustrate it. But <clears throat> yesterday, Rhonda said to me last night, we were just getting dinner ready, and she said something. What I thought she said was, are you getting over your cold? I said, yes, I am. She said, what did you think I said? <laughs> I said, are you getting over your cold? No. She said, um, oh, I stuffed that, doesn't matter. She said, um, no, are you getting your cold back again? To which I didn't say, yes, I am. I said, I hope so. <laughs> she, are you getting over your cold? I hope so. What did you think I said? She said, um, whatever you are, I've forgotten now. <laughs> What's the point? You can misunderstand one another. There was a time, I've never forgotten this, this is like 20 years ago, I've never forgotten it. There was a time when um, I did something wrong. Little thing. She reacted like this. And then her reaction made me react. That's pretty common too, and that can also be sinful. Um, but I'm working on it. And so her reaction and then my reaction and then it was just ramping up. And I thought, this is ridiculous. So we sit down and when I, when I get into that sort of mood, I become very logical, very rational, very quick. I become like a defense lawyer. <laughs> so don't get me in those moods because I become unreasonable in one sense. I become very rational, but immovable. So I've really got it enough of me. So I'm talking to Rhonda, and she said something. Well, I just, I, nearly, I went ballistic. My blood, everything went up. And suddenly something kicked in of some teaching or learning that I had years before, and suddenly it kicks in, and it was, let me tell you what I just heard you say. And I said it to her, and she went, no. And I went, what? <laughs> I'm a pretty good listener. I hear pretty well, usually. <clears throat> but she said, no, I didn't say that. And I went, 
okay, give it another go. And she said something else, and it was like totally different response for me. But because I had misheard or misunderstood what she was saying, I went up to this level. It's so easy to do, isn't it? Alarm. Uh, anger is an alarm. What we need to do is sometimes it can be a false alarm, so you need to check it out. Never let anger act. Time is going, I need to be quicker. Don't let anger act. Don't let anger speak and don't let anger make you do something. And if you type an email and you're angry, don't send it. And I will confess to you that I have done that on an occasion where I typed in, somebody wrote me an email and was highly offensive. And normally I just let those things go, you know. But this one I felt, actually, I need to say something. So I did. And I went line by line through their email and tore it apart. I was pretty good. I win all arguments in my mind. <clears throat> and then I thought, I'm not sending this. So I left it for days, for about a week. And I reread it in that week again and modified it, toned it down, changed that expression, deleted that. Did all of that, fixed it up, and so then it was a presentation of what I thought was factual, clear, but firm. Correcting them on what they were saying. And then they get the email and they are absolutely horrified that it was hurtful, it was attacking, it was all of the words that I would say, no, it wasn't any of that, but that's how they got it. That's what emails do. So I've learned a lesson. If you want to say nice, positive, encouraging things, use email. You've got a problem with somebody? You want to say something difficult? Don't use email, texts or Twitter. Face to face. It's got to be face to face. If you can't do it face to face, then do it over the phone. Because tone of voice, body language, all those things are very important cues. I've since met with that person, we've gone through it, and they told me how they reacted. I apologised immediately and said, that was not my intent. I did not mean to hurt you. I was intending to correct some stuff. Um, I was firm, but I acknowledged that, and I, would, and I said it to them. This is what I meant, and so I said it again. I didn't back down from what I said, but I apologised for the hurt or the offence I'd created emotionally for them. Don't use emails. So never let anger speak. Wait, breathe deeply. You've heard the expression, you know, count to ten before you, you know, stuff. It's not correct. It's not count to ten, because we can count pretty quick. One, two, three, four, five, nine, ten, boom. It's take ten breaths. That's the saying that came about a couple of hundred years ago. One. Two, and each breath you're bringing in, it's putting oxygen into your system and it's helping your brain and the endorphins and all the other hormones and chemicals to calm you down. Ten breaths. Wait. And then, when you are calmer, question, can you overlook it? Proverbs 19, verse 11. Can you stick it in the grace box? Can you say... They didn't mean it, it's not a big deal, <clears throat> blah, 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 it's not major. I can just simply ignore it and not count that, let that affect our relationship. Can you do that? Love covers a multitude of sins. That's a very gracious way to go. If you can do that, do that. But if you can't, no, I need to talk this out. I need to talk to this person, then do that and do exactly what the Bible says. Go and see them and have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation. Do not talk to anybody else. 
I used to say, it's okay if you go talk to one other person to help you get it clear in your own mind so they can be praying with you and they actually think I was wrong. I shouldn't teach that or say that. Jesus said, if you've got a problem with person A, go and see person A. Don't talk to B or C or D. Don't get them to be praying for you. Don't share with anybody else. Share it with A. That's it. So hard to do, but so important for us to do. Go see them. And if you do see them, don't attack them. Just explain the situation. You take responsibility for what you've done and be prepared to listen. It's interesting in both of these illustrations that Jesus has given us, inside and outside the church, Jesus expects there to be conflict. He's not about eliminating conflict. He's about resolving conflict when it happens. It's interesting, isn't it? So what do you need to do? Well, if someone's wronged you, look up to God. God, what are you doing? Get yourself right with him. Give me the right words. Let me glorify you in this situation. Remember that Jesus died for you. And what that person's done or said to you is not as bad as what you've done to God and Jesus, what he's already paid for. Look to God. Then look to yourself. Examine your own heart. Is there anything I have done to cause this? Is there something I need to apologize about, repent of? Is there something I need to say, please forgive me? Am I gossiping to any other people about it? If so, I need to stop that and then I need to confess it to this person as well. Look to myself. So look up, look within, and then go speak to the person. As I said, don't attack, explain. Seek to be reconciled. It's more important. Jesus says, stop your worship and go do that. Sort it out. What happens if you've wronged somebody else? Well, that's easy. Come to the realisation of it, confess it to God, admit it to him, and then go to the person and admit it to them and ask them to forgive you. Take full responsibility for what you've done or said, which is not right. That's the way forward. And I'll say this again. What happens when you haven't wronged somebody and and nobody else has wronged you, but you know that somebody else has wronged that person because they've either told you or you know about it? What do you do? So you're not involved directly, but you know that person has been offended. You know they're upset. What do you do? Well, encourage them to do number one. Look to God. Look to themselves. Go talk to that person. Encourage them to do what you should do if it was you. What if it doesn't work? What if you do all of that? And I go and say to them, and they're defensive, and it's actually worse. Well, the Bible says as much as um, it depends on you, as much as it is within you, strive to be at peace with all people as far as possible. It's not always possible. That's not your fault. Do all that you can do to be reconciled, to be right with the person. That's what Jesus wants us to do. Pray for them. Don't gossip about them. um, And continue to pray that God would convict them and bring them back to a correct position on it. What you should definitely do is to forgive them. Let me finish with this. Jesus has been talking about anger and relationships and getting upset with people and how we should process that and how we should be dealing with it. The next chapter, chapter 6, he does talk about uh, that we need to be forgiving towards others. And if we don't forgive others, then our Heavenly Father won't forgive us. What is forgiveness? Listen carefully. Forgiveness is not a feeling forgiveness is a decision and it's a promise 
It's a decision and a promise. The decision is that I will forgive you. I will cancel the debt. I'll cancel the guilt. I'll cancel the whatever the offense is that you have done to me. You have wronged me. I will forgive you. And the promise is that if I forgive you, I will not talk about it again. I won't talk about it to you. I won't talk about it to others. And I won't talk about it to me. I won't rehearse it and relive it and replay it in my mind. That's what forgiveness is. Jeremiah 31 verse 34, God says, Your sins and iniquities will I remember against you no more. It's a promise to not remember. In our case, not to recall. And it's to make that promise, that decision. Now, the one exception to that is, what happens when it's a brother? Do I have to forgive them? Do I have to wait for them to repent? Do they have to repent before I forgive them? No. You need to have an attitude of forgiveness towards them. But the one difference is that third part of the promise, I won't talk, I won't talk about it to me or to others, but I will talk to you about it because it's your sin and you need to repent. Forgiveness helps and heals me. Repentance helps and heals them. Do I have to wait for them to repent before I forgive? Do I have to wait to be helped and healed before they're helped and healed? No. So I need to be extending forgiveness at the same time reaching out to hold them to account for their sin because repentance is for them so that they get helped, they get healed, they get restored to their relationship with God and it's not up to me to hold it against them. That's God's job, not mine. Let me illustrate that. I've used this illustration years ago before. I was going to call the couple Mark and Barbara. It's not them. I'll change the names. He can stay Mark and she can be called Lucinda. He deeply wounded her. They went to a party and at the party, Mark paid far more attention to another girl called Shirley. That'll do. And Shirley was a previous girlfriend. Lucinda got hurt and got upset. Going home in the car that night, that's obviously she's upset. He realises he's been an idiot, that he's done a wrong thing, that he feels bad about it, he didn't mean anything by it, he's just an idiot. <clears throat> and he apologises and he says, can you please forgive me? She doesn't want to forgive him because she wants to stay angry at him because she deserves it. That's what we do. But anyway, she loves him and she knows that in a marriage it's important for us to be forgiving each other's... Uh, mistakes and hurts and so on and besides God had forgiven her so yes she decides to forgive him which is a promise then I won't mention it to him again I won't mention it to others and I will not relive it myself everything is fine they pray together kissy kiss hug hug and everybody's happy the next morning she gets up she's making breakfast poached eggs and she remembers the party and his awful behaviour, and how she felt about that. Poached eggs become scrambled eggs because the anger is starting to rise again as she remembers. Now she's got to choose, will I keep my promise or not? 
not about punishing him. It's now about, will I keep my promise? I said I would forgive. And I said I would not tell him, others, or myself. I will not replay it in my mind. So she makes a decision that, yes, she will forgive and she'll keep her promise. He comes downstairs. They have breakfast together. They help each other. They have a wonderful weekend together. Three days later, she's at the dentist. Something triggers again the memory of that party. She doesn't know what it was, but it comes back again. And the anger, the hurt, and what he did, and it won't go away. And she remembers. She's feeling self-pity and righteous and... He's in the wrong and she's in the right. But she knows this is wrong. I am not to replay it or relive it or rehearse it in my mind. So she deliberately chooses to put that aside and to refocus. She doesn't suppress it and push it down. She refocuses. Let me do something else to change what I'm focused on. And she does something else, makes that a menu for the week or whatever it is. And over the process of time, so that even two months later, she's able to bump into Shirley and she's able to genuinely greet her warmly because she has forgiven and the emotional pain and hurt while she may remember the act the deed the event it no longer taps into emotional hurt that's been healed that's what forgiveness is and that's what Jesus invites us to to deal with the anger in our lives and to forgive one another what if you won't forgive what if somebody else won't forgive you well, for the person who won't forgive, their resentment will turn into bitterness, Hebrews 12, 15, which will defile them and their relationships. A person who will not forgive continues to carry the burden of that event. It's almost like they're carrying the guilt. The other person, the offender, is not carrying it. You are because you will not forgive. It's actually hurting you. And more importantly, thirdly, because you won't forgive somebody else for what they've done to you, you will not walk closely and intimately with God. Because he will continue to say to you, forgive, forgive, forgive. When he's in the driver's seat of your car, he'll drive you straight to that person and say, sort it out. That'll be his number one agenda. So, what does all this mean for you? Is there righteousness in your heart? Not just the outward acts, but this true person, Jesus, living within, transforming you in the process. Do you have a problem with anger? Do you have an issue with anger? Whether it's a particular thing right now or whether it's an ongoing developing habit, something for you to admit to God and to ask for his help. And there is help available. If so, then you might need to realise and do some learning about Recognising the consequences of angry outbursts. Uh, acknowledging the consequences of damaging, angry, hurtful words. And remembering and recognising that one day you too will stand before Jesus and you will have to give an account to him of the choices that you have made. As he has forgiven us, so we are to forgive one another. And when we react by getting angry, don't let it simmer. Deal with it. Confess it. If you can overlook it, great. If you can't, have a conversation with the person who has done the offence and with no other. <clears throat> Some people can talk long, can't they? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God of grace and patience. 
God of righteousness and truth. And you call us to follow you. You call us to be a people who live sincerely from the inside out. Lord, forgive us for the times, perhaps even now, that we're angry with somebody and we're resentful, we've been harboring and that we've been unforgiving. Could you forgive us and could you help us to forgive them? Could you give us the courage to have conversations if we need to have them with anybody? Could you help us to not be attacking, not to be vindictive or hurtful, but to do all that we can to keep unity and reconciliation and closeness in the church family? Lord, this is your will and we pray and ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.